Hello and welcome to episode 89 of Pay-Per-View, in which I review newspaper headlines and events and place events and headlines in their true context. And the first story of this episode is... Sadiq Khan, the ULES expansion and 15-minute neighbourhoods. This is in the Daily Mail. And this next article is in the Daily Mail on the same subject. Fury at out-of-touch Sadiq Khan over war on drivers. London mayor accused of forcing ordinary workers off the roads with huge ULES expansion, more 20-mile-an-hour zones, 15-minute neighbourhoods and never-ending roadworks as even Labour MPs start to turn on him. Sadiq Khan is facing growing fury over his out-of-touch assault on motorists today. With warnings, he will turn London into a haven for rich people who work from home. Maps have laid bare the extent of the mayor's overhaul of the road network in the capital, with far more 20-mile-an-hour zones planned alongside the massive expansion of the ULES. But there are signs of mounting unrest among Labour MPs at shifting the boundary of the low-emission zone to outer London, dragging millions more into its orbit in a bid to cut air pollution. Meanwhile, Tories have railed ideological measures questioning the concept of 15-minute cities and insisting residents are becoming frustrated at constant roadworks. MPs argued that the mayor's proposals are geared towards people who either work from home and don't have to go anywhere, or if they do have to go anywhere, can afford an Uber or a cab. Some have claimed that the moves will merely displace polluting traffic and create more pinch points on the edges of restrictions, while those who have to travel will pay the price. After the congestion charge was introduced, there was evidence that nitrogen dioxide levels actually increased due to increased bus and taxi use, although more electric vehicles have been introduced since then. Mr. Khan has flatly denied he's waging war on motorists, pointing out that half of Londoners don't own a car and he has a duty to tackle poisonous air. Transport for London confirmed yesterday it is pushing ahead with plans to reduce the speed limits on 137 miles of roads by next year, saying evidence showed it would save lives. The body is responsible for London's strategic road network, which makes up around 5% of London's 9,190-mile network, but carries 30% of the traffic. Currently, 68 miles of TFL roads have 20-mile-an-hour speed limits, including everywhere inside the congestion charge area. Most changes will be from 30 miles an hour to 20 miles an hour, but there will also be cuts from 40 miles an hour to 30 miles an hour. It said a study of zones before and after they had 20 mile an hour limits found fatal collisions fell by 25%. The ULES is expanding to all outer London boroughs from April, but looks to be causing increasing nerves among Mr. Khan's own side. Four London Labour MPs broke cover on LBC with Shadow Treasury Minister Abina Opong Asari saying, My concern is we don't want to be in a situation where people are going to be worse off. Fellow frontbencher Seema Malhotra said, whilst I share the goal of reducing pollution and increasing air quality, I am very concerned about the economic impact the current rollout plans will have on residents and small businesses. The Feltham and Heston MP warned the plans will have a disproportionate effect on lower income families and the self-employed who use their vehicle for work. John Cruddus, MP for Barking and Dagenham, said he was deeply disappointed about the policy and his representations had fallen on deaf ears. Dagenham and Raynham is home to many low-income workers who rely on their personal vehicles, he said. Long-serving Labour MP for Mitchum and Morden, Siobhan McDonough, also reportedly expressed doubts about the scheme. Former Minister Bob Neill told Mail Online, I think the penny is dropping how out of touch he is with outer London seats. I think they are starting to feel the heat. It's a sign 
that the message is getting through even to Labour MPs. This is just an attack on outer London. Bromley and Chislehurst MP Sir Bob said Mr Khan's policies were focused on people who either work from home and don't have to go anywhere, or if they do have to go anywhere, can afford an Uber or a cab. It shows how totally out of touch he is with ordinary working people in London. It is just this very aggressive anti-motorist stance. We all recognise there are some areas where 20 mile an hour is appropriate because it's near a school or a care home or something like that. But what we're really trying to move to is a blanket 20 mile an hour by default in parts of outer London. That is simply not appropriate. It's ideology getting in the way of common sense. He warned that the capitalist policies were likely to spread to other parts of the country. If they can get away with it in London, which is being used by some on the left as a test bed. So Bob said, what's significant is that Starmer has not been coming out condemning it. They are happy to let Sadiq get on with it, whatever the cost to ordinary Londoners. So Bob said he was hearing complaints about temporary traffic lights and roadworks. A lot of people are getting very frustrated. It all seems to be part of an agenda to make life more and more difficult for motorists, he said. What works in outer London is completely different from what works in inner London. And even in inner London, there are, are a lot of people who are not well healed. They need to get about to do jobs quite often at antisocial hours. We had a daft suggestion from one Labour person that workmen could take their tools on the tube. If you're doing building jobs, it is ridiculous. This is all the stuff for people who have never done these sorts of jobs in their lives. Louis French, Tory MP for Old Bexley and Sidcup, tweeted, Being no doubt public outrage and people power is now forcing Labour MPs to come out against Sadiq Khan's U.S. tax rate on drivers in outer London. Tory former leader Ian Duncan Smith told men online, More and more councils, Labour included, understand the U.S. expansion to all of London is a fraud. It will have no real effect on air quality. It will cause financial hardship. It is a tax hike, pure and simple, to bail them out. The U.S. expansion is being rushed and will hurt many lower-income Londoners. Cannes tax will force some people out of work. London needs a properly thought-out air quality scheme, not this box job. But a source close to Mr. Cannes said the mayor has been cleared the decision to expand ULES was not an easy one, but necessary to protect the health of Londoners and tackle the climate emergency. Health experts agree toxic air is a public health crisis. Polluted air is stunting the lungs of children, leading to life-changing illnesses such as cancer, dementia and asthma, and resulting in around 4,000 Londoners dying prematurely every year. Over four-fifths of vehicles in outer London are already ULES compliant. You can check your vehicle on TfL's vehicle checker. However, the mayor recognises that some people will need support moving to cleaner vehicles. That's why he has invested £110 million in the UK's vehicle scrappage scheme to support lower-income Londoners and small businesses. Tackling the climate crisis is the defining issue of our times and cleaning up London's air is central to that. The mayor urges all politicians to prioritise the health of Londoners and the lives of future generations over short-term politics and to avoid joining the ranks of the climate action delayers. We need to take action if we are to build a fairer, greener future. Mr Khan mounted a staunch defence in an open letter to critics this week saying toxic air led to the premature deaths of 4,000 Londoners each year. He said research by Imperial College London shows Bromley has the highest premature deaths linked to air pollution with an estimated 204 lives lost in 2019. But Bromley Council leader Colin Smith said the study commissioned by City Hall chose to ignore Bromley's much older population profile. He said many elderly residents spent their younger years in inner London experiencing the smogs and smoke-filled pubs of yesteryear. He added, it is complete nonsense. A spokeswoman for the Mayor of London said these councils are denying the science. 
in order to justify their opposition to clean air policies. The air quality data used by City Hall is completely robust and is based on the most accurate scientific investigation into the human cost of poor air from globally renowned experts and Imperial College London. In July 2020, Mr. Cam was asked at City Hall what he was doing to make progress on 15-minute neighbourhoods, a concept where residents can live, work and access services within an easy walk of their home. Londoners are spending more time closer to home. They want their neighbourhoods to be welcoming, healthy and sustainable, not clogged up with traffic and pollution, he said. London's recovery must be an inclusive green recovery that enables all Londoners to walk and cycle around greener neighbourhoods and support their local high streets. And there's another article here on this subject. There's two more, including this one. Uh, I don't know what newspaper this is. I, I tried to find the, the article online, um, but I couldn't find it. But I found a, a screenshot someone did. So I'll read the article anyway. Eco-cultists won't ban driving. Instead, they make it too expensive. This is by Howard Cox, Fair Fuel UK founder. It says, Something is happening in UK cities that is restricting our freedom of mobility and choice of transport, and it's getting worse by the day. Aberdeen, Bath, Birmingham, Bradford, Bristol, where I'm from, Dundee, London, Greater Manchester, Portsmouth, Sheffield, Tyneside, Newcastle and Gateshead all have one thing in common. The elected local politicians who run these cities have vigorously embraced a new and fast-growing money tree. An opportune, lucrative and easy source of growing plunder to fill local authority coffers in their debt black holes. We have known for years that the environmental cultists have had it in for drivers. They'd like to ban cars entirely but appear to have come to the correct conclusion that making diesel and petrol extinct is unreasonable to most people. So with, little, so, so with little, if any, consultation, a wave of national and local political schemes to make driving more expensive and complicated are coming thick and fast right across the UK. Canterbury and Oxford are now subject to a new set of anti-car restrictions, the 15-minute zone with potential costs to drive from one to another. The 15-minute city is a residential urban concept in which most daily necessities and services, such as work, shopping, education, health and leisure, should be located within, these, within an easily reachable 15 minute walk or bike ride from any point in the city. And then there is the ultra low emission zone. It is no coincidence the cities I've mentioned are mostly controlled by the impulsive green loving SNP, Liberal Democrat and Labour councillors. Political parties ignorant of or too scared to challenge the reality that their anti-driver policies are hurting local economies, low-income families and small businesses. More councillors and city mayors are jumping on a fashionable bandwagon to fleece millions of pounds from the UK's cash cow, hard-pressed, already highly-taxed drivers. For now, I will focus on a capital, but be in no doubt that what's happening in London is coming to a city near you. Labour Mayor City Can is set to expand the already punitive ULEZ to the whole of Greater London, even though over 66% of people opposed it. From the end of August, every borough within the M25 will be a ULEZ area, which means that owners of older diesel and petrol cars will pay £12.50 every time they enter the zone. The UK's most powerful local politician manipulates policy to suit his personal agenda, which is not only contemptible, but also possibly unlawful. Well, it's not his agenda, he's just a frontman for it. As with politics in general, he has deliberately demonised hundreds of thousands of well-serviced vehicles that have passed the MOT emissions test. That's how desperate
desperate he is to raise cash from an easy target in his continuing anti-driver quest. This week, the ex-mayor of London, Boris Johnson, described the expansion as an unfair tax grab. He said it will hit hard-working families and businesses in outer London. Boris is supporting Hillingdon, one of several boroughs in London affected that are threatening a boycott by refusing to put up the Chinese-made cameras that will nick motorists. And four Labour MPs are also opposed to it. According to London Assembly's Tory members, Mayor Khan excluded the views of 5,000 fair fuel UK supporters who took part in a consultation about the ULES expansion. These voters, taxpayers and free citizens, took part in the Transport for London consultation process, believing their comments would count. That is why the mayor must be subject to an urgent independent inquiry. Labour must suspend him from the party too. According to Transport for London's own data, the new enlarged ULES zone will be environmentally ineffective in making any difference to pollution levels. Let's not beat about the bush. Can's scheme is purely a devious cash grab hidden behind the virtue signalling emotive cover of improving air quality. When the ULES was expanded to the north and south circular, it generated an estimated extra £94 million for TfL, Transport for London, in just one year. Then the emission specifications changed, moving the goalposts for drivers. What if the goalposts move again in a year's time if the money is needed? It is predicted the new expansion plans will generate £300 million. In a fair fuel UK opinion poll of 44,000 UK drivers, one in three sole traders and one in four visitors said they will never drive into London again. The impact of high pump prices and cans vindictive taxes will mean many businesses will go to the wall. The misguided belief that hitting the worst off in the pocket will save the planet has to be challenged. If the internal combustion engine is so deadly to our health, why not ban them all from entering our cities? The message is clear. You are most welcome to bring in your diesel provided you pay for the privilege with your hard-earned dosh. Thankfully, five London councils have just issued a judicial review against Cannes' ill-informed anti-driver plan based on lack of consultation, an absence of any cost-benefit analysis and breaking statutory requirements. If they win, London's ULS expansion plan may not happen. In that case, what will the council lemmings and other UK cities decide to do with their copycat plans to fleece hard-pressed motorists? When you study this global cult and their agenda, the reason there's copycat plans, as they're referred to in this article, is because this agenda dictates from the global right down to the local level. And councils local government in other words are effectively subsidiaries of a global network this is the model of a multinational corporation which has its headquarters somewhere in the world and then you have the subsidiaries which run their business in basically the same way apart from maybe a bit of window dressing here and there it's basically the same policy that's how this agenda works and speaking of the agenda a big part of the structure for the agenda is the military intelligence network so we're going to move on to that now with our next subject with this article on the the 77th brigade this is in the daily mail army spied on lockdown critics skeptics including our own peter hitchens long suspected they were under surveillance now we've obtained official records that prove they were right all along a shadowy army unit secretly spied on British citizens who criticised the government's COVID lockdown policies the Mail on Sunday can reveal. Military operatives in the UK's Information Warfare Brigade were part of a sinister operation that targeted politicians and high-profile journalists who raised doubts about the official pandemic response. They compiled dossiers on public figures such as ex-minister David Davis, 
who questioned the modelling behind alarming death toll predictions, as well as journalists such as Peter Hitchens and Toby Young. Their dissenting views were then reported back to number 10. Documents obtained by the civil liberties group Big Brother Watch and shared exclusively with the Daily Mail exposed the work of government cells, such as the counter-disinformation unit based in the Department of for Digital Culture, Media and Sport and the Rapid Response Unit in the Cabinet Office. The Army whistleblower said it is quite obvious that our activities resulted in the monitoring of the UK population, monitoring the social media posts of ordinary scared people these posts did not contain information that was untrue or coordinated it was simply fear last night former cabinet minister david davis a member of the privy council said it's outrageous that people questioning the government's policies were subject to covert surveillance and questioned the waste of public money mail on sunday journalist peter hitchens was monitored after sharing an article based on leaked nhs papers which claimed data used to publicly justify lockdown was incomplete an internal rapid response unit email said mr hitchens wanted to further an anti-lockdown agenda and influence the commons vote writing today mr hitchens questions if he was shadow banned over his criticisms with his view of views effectively censored by being downgraded in search results he says the most astonishing thing about the great covid panic was how many attacks the state managed to make on basic freedoms without anyone much even caring let alone protesting now is the time to demand a full and powerful investigation into the dark material big brother watches bravely uncovered the whistleblower from 77th brigade which uses both regular and reserve troops said I developed the impression the government were more interested in protecting the success of their policies than uncovering any potential foreign interference, and I regret that I was a part of it. Frankly, the work I was doing should never have happened, he said. The source also suggested that the government was so focused on monitoring critics it may have missed genuine Chinese-led pro-lockdown campaigns. Silky Kylo of Big Brother Watch said this is an alarming case of mission creep where public money and military power have been misused to monitor academics, journalists, campaigners and MPs who criticise the government, particularly during the pandemic. The fact that this political monitoring happened under the guise of countering misinformation highlights how, without serious safeguards, the concept of wrong information is open to abuse and has become a blank check the government uses in an attempt to control narratives online. Contrary to their stated aims, these government truth units are secretive and harmful to our democracy. The counter-disinformation unit should be suspended immediately and subject to a full investigation. The Downing Street source said the units had scaled back their work significantly since the end of lockdowns. It says here, and there's a, an article I found which was actually published in August 2022, but it's connected to lockdown policies and COVID policies, and I think it's worth featuring it anyway. It's in the Telegraph, it's called Why on Earth Did We Give Up Our Freedom Without an Argument? We need to go on talking about lockdown. You might think now that both candidates for Tory... So this is obviously going to relate to what was going on at the time, but there's some good points made. We need to go on talking about lockdown. You might think now that both candidates for Tory leader have begun what is likely to be a stampede of government ministers denying they ever supported it, that the story of this unprecedented historical event was finished. So discredited will the policy and its sinister propaganda programme have become that sooner than you might have thought possible, records will be amended and memories erased in the great totalitarian tradition to make it appear that this terrible thing was somehow inflicted on the nation without anybody's official approval. So why not let it go? It's over thank goodness it will never happen again let's just forget it and get on with the life as we used to know it rather than wasting time on post hoc analysis but we cannot 
must not give in to this seemingly reasonable temptation because what happened over the past two years at, at that time in this country and most of the developed world was not just a mistake not merely a failure of judgment or a misreading of the facts or more specifically a confusion about what constitutes fact it was something far bigger and more alarming a surrender of the fundamental principles of liberty and individual responsibility which we had assumed were unassailable in the west and were envied with much consternation in the east it is absolutely imperative to remember that we believed before this great lurch into authoritarianism that we had cracked it the western democracies had found the answer to the extra question how should people live but that's an interesting point because I'd look at this in more detail in the new book but I've said before I said I said in this podcast even before Covid that the agenda is to turn the West indeed the world in general into basically the Chinese model of totalitarianism and control the article continues here was the unbeatable formula freedom under the rule of law the primacy of personal responsibility under elected government, the right to a private life over which the state could not intervene except in the most carefully litigated ways. Another point I've made over the years is this agenda, this global agenda, seeks to dictate right down to the fine detail of people's lives, and we saw that during the COVID era. The article continues, the despotic states which held out against this global democratic tide became more and more desperately defensive. The principal one, the Soviet Union, simply collapsed under the impossibility and its upcoming rival. China had to resort to bribing its younger generations with shameless wealth, creating a new bourgeoisie which would have appalled Marx. So what really happened here? Not only was there the introduction by fiat of the most extraordinarily invasive legal prohibitions, exceeding anything that had been imposed in the modern era, even during wartime, children were not banned from embracing their grandparents during the war, nor was it a crime to have a sexual relationship with someone outside your household. But any public criticism of these measures was effectively prohibited or stigmatised to an extent that was almost unendurable. But let's get past the outrage and condemnation and ask the real question, why? How did it come to this? The explanation has to go beyond politics, at least in the ordinary sense of the word. It has to be pathological. The world went crazy. There was no other way to account for what was an almost nihilistic dismantling not just of particular liberties and rights, but of the very idea of liberty. Of course, there was a strong element of traditional political activism in play. The argument was instantly framed by the inevitable Marxist hangers-on in terms that suited anti-capitalist dogma. If you were opposed to lockdown on the grounds of the damage that it would do to the economy, you were cast as a ruthless defender of profits over people. In other words, you would prefer to sacrifice lives, notably of the elderly and vulnerable, for the sake of more of mere monetary gains. Thus did protecting the economy become synonymous with protecting the richest and probably healthiest sectors of the population. Presumably even the most infantile left-winger can see now that the damage to the economy in this horrendous period is hitting the least well-off hardest. A thriving economy is not a euphemism for profiteering. It is the condition that provides prosperity, well-being and opportunity for the maximum number of people. But if you have an agenda to destroy people's ability to survive so they become dependent on you, authority for survival, and they have to live your life the way you say they have to live it and take all the vaccines that you tell them they need to take and all the rest of it, then destroying the economy and destroying people's ability to live and provide for themselves is exactly what you would need to do. And that's one main reason why the COVID hoax happened, as I explain in more detail in the new book. 
the article continues, and prosperity does not mean crass affluence, buying more and more unnecessary stuff. It offers the great mass of the population the chance of self-determination, the ability to make life choices and to fulfill their potential. But if you have an agenda of control, then the more choices you have, the more freedom you have. The less choices you have, the less freedom you have, because you are limited in what you can do. The article continues, making a conscious decision to embrace policies that damage the economy should be morally unacceptable except under the most terrific circumstances. Some people in which we were not in because there was no virus as I've detailed many times before and I detail in the new book. But if you can persuade people that they were under the most terrific circumstances, then you can justify what you want to do, which is what happened. Some people in power clearly thought the pandemic was such a circumstance. Other people simply used it as a pretext for shutting down an economic system that they had always disliked. If we had got the argument out in the open, the second group might have been exposed. But there was a more insidious difference between the pro and anti-lockdown camps, which is older than the divide between the supporters of free markets and the champions of command economies. Perhaps it is the most basic disagreement of all because it goes right to the heart of the human condition. There is an eternal struggle in every organised society between the long for freedom and the need for security. Indeed, that struggle exists within every individual. In political systems, those two polar impulses have taken the form of liberal democracies, which prioritised freedom, and authoritarian governments, which promised often falsely security. During the second half of the last century, there was a pretty clear sense of which countries and which political systems represented those two options. During the Cold War, we knew where we were. It was communist dictatorship versus the free world. It says here... You chose the side you supported, which was not always the one you were born into. Some people changed their minds and their loyalties over time. Then a generation ago, all that certainty and the debate that went with it came to an end. The failed communist Leviathan, it is now obvious, had a complete nervous breakdown. Maybe not so obviously we did too. Well, you know, whatever you call it, communism, fascism, apartheid, Marxism, capitalism. The common theme between all of them is centralised control. They all have that in common. And there's an article here from the other side of this. This is in The Guardian from 2019, but still just as relevant as ever. A growing lack of trust in authority poses a serious danger to our health. Virtually every Bangladeshi and Rwandan believes that vaccines are safe. Fewer than half of Japanese or French do so. In Western Europe, almost one in six of those with college education reject vaccines. In Southern Africa, you're twice as likely to do so if you attend a university. These are among the often disturbing facts that tumble out of a new study, the Welcome Global Monitor, a survey of 140,000 people from 140 countries. It is at heart an exploration of the relationship between science, trust and attitudes to vaccination. Well, the Welcome Global Monitor is a project of the Welcome Trust, which Bill Gates is connected with and funds. And when the new book comes out, Bill Gates' ears won't just be burning, they'll be burnt to a crisp and fall to the floor like you see in those old cartoons. He was absolutely fundamental to the COVID hoax. And I detail that in one of three chapters looking at COVID. And I also look in the new book at vaccines over, over I think, 55 pages and about 60 pages on the COVID vaccine comprehensively. The article continues, trust has become a vital political issue. Many worry about the erosion of confidence, both in expertise and in public institutions and, not, and about the social consequences of that erosion. One is the growing refusal to believe medical authority, especially about vaccination, from measles outbreaks in America and Europe to the spread of Ebola in Central Africa. Scepticism about vaccines has had a devastating impact. 
The Wellcome Global Monitor survey suggests that the relationship between scientific and social trust in attitudes to vaccination is more complex than many imagine. One might think, for instance, that better scientific education and greater confidence in healthcare professionals will be linked to greater trust of vaccines. It is not. There tends to be greater scepticism about vaccines in richer, better educated countries than in poorer states in which people have less education and are more sceptical about the benefits of science. Western Europe shows some of the highest levels of trust in both scientists and healthcare professions. 88% have high or medium trust in scientists, 68% have a lot of trust in medical professionals, and 78% believe that science benefits people like them. But with the sole exception of Eastern Europe, Western Europe also has the lowest level of trust in the world in vaccines. What must the level of trust in vaccines be now, this COVID fake vaccine, fake because it doesn't stop transmission or infection and the pharmaceutical companies don't even claim that? What must the level of trust be in vaccines now that the COVID fake vaccine is, has caused global health devastation and murder? The article continues. In North Africa, just 61% have trust in scientists, medical professionals, or trusted a lot, even by by less than a third of the population, fewer than half think that science benefits people like them. 59% of Western Europeans believe that vaccines are safe. 85% of North Africans do so. In low-income countries, 81% of even those with low trust in scientists have confidence in vaccines. In rich countries, the figure drops to less than half. Poor countries remain ravaged by diseases long eliminated from Western nations. Globally, some 2.5 million children under five die every year from vaccine preventable diseases. In countries such as Bangladesh and Rwanda, vaccination programs have helped transform the lives of millions. In richer countries, medical advances, including vaccines, have been so effective that many no longer recognise their importance or the consequences of rejection. There are, however, deeper problems than just a lack of historical memory. Trust is shaped by myriad social forces. Inequality is one. According to the Welcome Report, the more unequal a nation, the greater the distrust of science. In both rich and poor countries, those whose lives are more precarious are more sceptical of science than those who say they are living comfortably, a trend particularly pronounced in rich nations. There is also the question of the relationship between scientific and political trust. According to Welcome, the level of confidence people have in their national institutions, their government, judicial system and military was a good predictor of the level of trust in science. Scepticism of authority is good. Too little scepticism allows those in power to maintain power. It also allows for the spread of disease when, for instance, there is an unwillingness to challenge religious authority. Indispensable to the project of creating a better, fairer society is the questioning of authority and of received wisdom. It's interesting that he uses the phrase religious authority because authority, in terms of what it says, how things are, is a religion for a vast amount of people. That's why they didn't question it. The article continues. Today, though, scepticism about authority has become an end in itself. Rather than leading to more rational views of society, it often drives people towards conspiracy theories about elites and experts into believing all manner of irrational claims. What research has this writer done to establish that they're irrational claims? that much. The article continues, the anti-vax movement has exploited such scepticism to foster wild fears about vaccination, and not just in Western nations. A study suggested that last year, so this is 2018, that in the Democratic Republic of Congo, nearly half the population thought an Ebola outbreak was being fabricated to destabilise the region or for financial gain. The result was Ebola spreading under the radar of skeptics of evaded treatment. Trust, or rather the lack of it, clearly shapes much, much of our political landscape, but it can also have a direct impact on physical well-being. From America to the Congo, distrust for that reason could be a matter of life and death. Or, when it comes to the COVID fake vaccine, trust without reason can be a matter of life and death. 
And speaking of trust in authority, this is one of the consequences of that during the COVID era. And I talk about this in the new book. This is an article on the website of the Foundation for Economic Education. CNN medical analyst says masking stunted her toddler's language development and taught her an important lesson about trade-offs. During the 1960s, the phrase the personal is political became a rallying cry for second-wave feminists challenging the social framework that existed at the time. There was an unhealthy collectivist undercurrent to this idea. There are no personal solutions at this time, wrote Women's Liberation Movement member Carol Hanisch in an essay on the topic. There is only collective action for collective solution, but the phrase also contains an element of truth. Personal experience does play an undeniable role in how many humans perceive politics and social structures, which brings me to CNN medical analyst Dr. Liana Wen. Throughout the pandemic, Wen was in what I'll call the pro-mandate camp. The article says, in March 2021, she excoriated governors who rescinded or failed to pass mask mandates in their states. We are not out of the woods. We have not reached the end of the pandemic, Wen said in a pro-mask CNN piece. It's counterproductive and truly infuriating. These governors are treating this as if the pandemic is over. It's not true. What about it never started? Later that year, she went so far as to argue that unvaccinated people should not be allowed to leave their homes. We need to start looking at the choice to remain unvaccinated the same as we look at driving while intoxicated, when told CNN's Chris Cuomo. You have the option to not get vaccinated if you want, but then you can't go out in public. She said that, despite the pharmaceutical companies not even claiming the vaccine stops transmission or infection. Did she know that? If she didn't, then she shouldn't be doing the job she is. If she did, then she's a psychopath. A year later, either way, she shouldn't be doing the job she is. But anyway, the article continues. A year later, Wen's views have changed. In a recent Washington Post article, she explained why she'll no longer be masking her children and how she shifted away from being extremely cautious with COVID protocols. I accept the risk that my kids will probably contract COVID-19 this school year, just as they could contract the flu, respiratory, syncytial virus and other contagious diseases, she writes. As for most Americans, COVID in our family will almost certainly be mild. And like most Americans, we've made the decision that following precautions strict enough to prevent the highly contagious BA.5 variant will be very challenging. Wem's observations are not wrong, the new variants are, are less deadly and that is particularly true for children which has always been the case. A year ago when was still advocating strict mandates uh, we pointed out that the CDC's own data showed small children were at far greater risk of dying from the flu, drowning, vehicle collisions, cancer and other things than Covid. This data, for whatever reason, apparently did little to persuade Wen in 2021. What does appear to have changed in mind is that her child appears to have suffered from the mandates. Masking has harmed our son's language development, she bluntly asserts in the article. Throughout the pandemic, few policies have been debated with more fury than mask mandates. The vast majority of these debates focus on a single point. Does masking prevent or even reduce COVID transmission? Some studies say yes, others cast out on their efficacy. For many, however, the efficacy of masking becomes a sort of dogma that could not even be questioned. If you doubt this, the article says, consider that until a few days ago, when the article was written, one faced risk of suspension on YouTube for suggesting that masks don't play a role in preventing COVID transmission. Far less discussion focused on the cost of forcing people to wear masks and when now sees this as a mistake. There is a trade-off, she says. 
Many, however, refused to acknowledge this and argued that masking is simply a moral imperative. I recently had a discussion at a family gathering, the, the writer of the article says, with the person who supports mask mandates. He became indignant when my sister-in-law said she did not think it was right to force her children to wear masks at school all day long. It's about protecting others, he said. It's the smallest thing. The fact that she was not wearing a mask himself, as he said this, didn't seem the least bit ironic to him. But it proved Wen's point there were trade-offs. If there was not, we'd wear them all the time, the article says. The idea of trade-offs is perhaps the most basic principle in all of economics. It's rooted in a simple idea. In order to have or do one thing, one must sacrifice having or doing something else. All things come with opportunity costs, big and small. A minor trade-off while masking is simply being able to breathe more freely. For most of the pandemic, many Americans and most public health officials refused to acknowledge the reality of trade-offs. In 2021, the New York Times described a phenomenon known as COVID absolutism. It consists of two primary factors. One, taking every conceivable step that could reduce the spread of COVID regardless of its actual effectiveness, and two, downplaying or ignoring the unintended consequences and trade-offs of these policies. They're not unintended. That's the point. The unintended consequences are why the hoax happened in the first place. The destruction of the economy and supply chain that we're seeing now is not an accident. It's not a unintended consequence. It's not an oversight. It's not a oh, look at what this real COVID virus did, and now, as a result, we got the destruction of the economy. No, there was no COVID virus, but the claim that there was, was propagated to destroy the economy. That's why it happened. That's the point. All the consequences of COVID are why the COVID hoax was played in the first place, including all the destruction of health and death as a result of the COVID fake vaccine. The article continues. Basic economics, however, teaches us the folly of this thinking. The article says there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs, Thomas Sowell famously observed. This was the economic lesson when learned during the pandemic. She didn't learn it in a classroom or in a textbook, she learned it in a personal experience when her own child began to struggle with language development. Not a minor trade-off, just like countless other children. Well, is it an unintended consequence, the problems children now have with communication and language, when this global cult seeks to keep people apart or is that why masks were suggested in the first place yes it was the article continues writing in the atlantic stephanie murray also wrote about the reality of trade-off stating that many parents with youngsters are struggling to see the potential benefits of masking as a poor trade for what they lose developmentally what they lose developmentally is why masks were suggested in the first place the article continues, children with speech or language disorders offer perhaps the clearest example of these murky trade-offs, she writes. This is precisely why decision-making must be left individuals, not bureaucrats. Nobody is more capable of weighing the pros and cons of a trade or action better than the people who themselves stand to lose or benefit from that trade or action, or in this case, their parents. Dr. Wen no doubt knows a great deal about public health, just like Anthony Fauci and Rochelle Pibolinsky. <laughs> if you looked at their records... But even Fauci and Malensky, I suspect, would concede that it's Wen who knows what's better for her child. It must be stressed that it's not just that Wen wants what's best for her child, it's that she actually knows what's best for her child because she has infinitely more knowledge about her child than any distant bureaucrat or meddling politician could ever possess. Nobel Prize winning economist F.A. Hayek detailed this local knowledge concept in his work exploring the knowledge problem and he showed why central planners seeking to engineer society through force are capable of producing little beyond planned chaos. This is why it's so important that freedom of decision making is left to those who have the most local knowledge and can most accurately assess the risks and rewards of any given action. Planned chaos. Well, 
I'll give him that. That's exactly what it was, planned chaos. It's not a risk-reward trade-off unintended consequences, planned chaos. It's a, we're going to say there's a virus. We know there's not, but we want to cause an enormous amount of chaos for people and destroy the health of people and kill people with a fake vaccine, which already existed, but we need an excuse to justify getting it into the bodies of people, including children and babies. So... We'll say there's a virus, and then we'll be able to do all the, all of those things we want to do. Because that's the mentality of the people running this world. While we let them carry on running the world, more chaos will ensue. Planned chaos. Long planned chaos. As I show in the new book, this COVID pandemic was planned decades back. It didn't just happen in 2020. That's why the organisation and coordination of it was so seamless worldwide. And I talk about the structure through which that organisation and coordination was possible in the new book. The good news is that when to recredit appears to have learned something throughout the tragedy of the COVID pandemic, as have so many others. The article says the tragedy is that for so long, she overlooked trade-offs and used a platform to advocate coercive policies that deprived individuals of the ability to choose a tragedy that is compounded by the fact that Wen now finds herself a target of cancellation for advocating a more sensible approach. It's an ironic twist considering that only a year ago when herself was a proponent of confining unvaccinated people to their homes and not one we should celebrate. But hopefully it can be a learning experience for when and others who now recognise the danger in turning what should be individual decisions over to bureaucrats and political tribes. So here's another expert people were told to trust. This is Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, promoting the COVID fake vaccine to children. This is around Christmas time last year. Well, kids, I'm just doing my yearly call to the North Pole for Santa's holiday health check. <laughs> Why, hello, Dr. Tam. Mrs. Claus, so good to see you again. Where did Santa go? Oh, Santa was late for snow yoga with the elves and reindeer. He says it's great cross-training for sleigh driving. Sounds fun. Are you all set for the holiday season? Of course. I, I must say, Dr. Tam, it just warms my heart to see everyone in Canada, especially kids, working so hard to keep the holidays safe and cheerful for all. So am I, Mrs. Claus. Every child in Canada has definitely earned a place on the nice list. Their parents and caregivers too. It's been a tough season with lots of viruses making people sick. Thankfully, Santa and I are feeling as healthy as ever. We are both up to date with our vaccinations, including COVID boosters and flu shots. That's so good to hear. I always tell Santa to make a list and check it twice. One. Stay up to date on your vaccinations. Two, wear a mask in crowded indoor places and make sure it fits nice and snug. Three, wash your hands to the tune of jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Great advice. Great voice too. Also, you can be sure to stay at home if you're feeling sick. And if you're gathering indoors with other people or elves, open a door or a window but for a few minutes at a time to let in some fresh air. The more items you check off the list, the more protected you are.
Yes, you can think of it like decorating a tree. You need tinsel, lights, ornaments, and a star on top. The tree is at its best when all the decorations are up and nicely layered. Thanks, Mrs. Claus. And Dr. Tam said that on TV to the Canadian public, despite the fact, as I cover in the new book, that the COVID fake vaccines, according to official government data up to September 2021, have already harmed and killed more children in America than all other vaccines combined up to that point. From January 1st, 1991 to November 30th, 2020, a month before the first COVID-19 fake vaccine was given emergency use authorization in America, there were only a total of 6,068 deaths recorded, mostly infant babies, due to all available vaccines. As of September 10th, 2021, over 3.1 million injuries have been recorded in VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, due to the COVID fake vaccine. Alongside 80,337 emergency room visits, 60,565 hospitalizations, 19,210 permanent disabilities, 15,012 life-threatening events and 14,925 deaths. In total, that constitutes more than twice as many deaths recorded shortly after people received the COVID fake vaccine during the nine months since they were given emergency use authorization than deaths recorded following all other available vaccines in the previous 30 years. There's a lot more other statistics like that that I cover in the new book and a whole chapter about the COVID fake vaccine. And bear in mind those figures it's estimated that only about 10 to 1% of figures are ever reported and the figure will be a lot closer to 1% for the COVID fake vaccine because of all the pressure on doctors not to report adverse events, deaths as possibly vaccine, COVID vaccine related. So when you take that into account and you look at those numbers, then obviously the, the real figures are much higher. But despite that, Dr. Tam still went on television to promote the COVID fake vaccine to children. And here is... Uh, recent Fox News report on the consequences for pregnant women of taking the COVID fake vaccine. I say fake vaccine because it doesn't stop transmission or infection and even the pharmaceutical companies don't claim that it does and it doesn't meet the previous criteria of a vaccine. ...data to compare outcomes after the COVID-19 vaccines with outcomes after the influenza vaccine and it found a 1,200-fold increase in menstrual abnormalities and a 57-fold increase in miscarriages. Wait, where's Planned Parenthood on this? Don't they care about women? There's also a 38-fold increase in stillborn or fetal death rate. Dr. James Thorpe co-authored the paper. He is a board-certified OBGYN maternal fetal medicine specialist, and we're happy to have him join us tonight. Doctor, thank you so much for coming on. These, you know, to the layman, these seem like very dramatic numbers. Is that how you read them? Uh, yes, Tucker. And uh, first of all, thank you very much for giving my patients a voice. My, my views are not shared uh, by my employer, maybe not. But let's start out. One can make a very strong argument, Tucker, that the pushing of these experimental COVID-19 vaccines globally is the greatest violation of medical ethics in the history of medicine, maybe humanity. We have never, ever broken the sacral, sanct, golden rule of pregnancy. Never, ever. I, I published extensively in my career and extensively 
in the last three years, all on COVID. And what we've seen, this article, we're honored that I hear that it's going to be a lead feature article in a major peer-reviewed medical journal, which will be published, God willing, March 1st. And let me set the scenario. What we did was we compared the COVID-19 vaccine adverse events over 18 months with that of the influenza vaccine over 282 months. Now, Tucker, the uh, FDA and the CDC, this is governmental data, and they use a danger threshold. We did it exactly by their rigorous recommendations of twofold or greater is abnormal. And what you said is true. We found a 1,200-fold increase in severe menstrual abnormalities, a 57-fold increase in miscarriage, a 38-fold increase in fetal death or stillbirth rates. And um, we found 15 other major pregnancy complications, all far exceeding the CDC and the FDA um, values of safety. So what, what we have is I can produce it more than 30 other completely independent sources globally that corroborate exactly our findings, Tucker. And if that's, if that's not uh, bad enough, there are, um, this is, includes Pfizer's own internal data. Unbelievable. I hope the self-appointed Defenders of Women will take notice. We appreciate your work, Dr. James Thorpe. Thank you. So this is the consequence of women taking the fake vaccine. And this is the same fake vaccine that Dr. Teresa Tam recommends. Listen to the experts, they tell us. Over the last 16, 17 years, I've tracked and communicated an agenda by a global cult. Some people call them to enslave humanity and since 2020 we've seen that agenda come to the fore like never before. COVID-19 was a global psychological operation or PSYOP of the most extraordinary breathtaking proportions and this is one reason why so many didn't question it because the hoax was on such a scale that it escapes their range of perception of possibility. The COVID hoax PSYOP was played to create the Hunger Games Society what is that? Imagine a pyramid. What is that? Imagine a pyramid structure with the elite, the cult, in mega, mega luxury dictating to the global population at the top of the pyramid. At the bottom is the entirety of the global population dependent on authority to survive. This is where the cashless society comes in, a pittance amount of credit only allotted to your bank account on the proviso that you do what authority says. The plan is that the entirety of humanity, including those currently who think none of this applies to them because they've got a good amount of money, is in dependency on authority to survive. If you're not the cult and the less than 1%, they want your money too. They want your money too. 
In between the cult and global population is planned to be a vicious, merciless global police military force, eventually robotic and run by AI, to enforce the will of the cult on the global population. The Covid hoax, the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the resulting economic and financial consequences have massively contributed to this agenda, which is one main reason why they happened in the first place. The Hunger Games Society is certainly unfolding. A report by Oxfam in 2019 estimated that the world's richest 26 men owned as much as the poorest half of the global population, and none of them are the inner core of the cult. Nearly 70 of the world's leading economic entities are cult-owned corporations, not countries. Apple historically became the world's first trillion-dollar company in 2018. Gates' Bill Gates's Microsoft has a GDP larger than countries like Canada, Russia and Spain. Giant cult-owned corporations are increasingly dominating and the Covid lockdowns have massively decimated a large amount of their competition worldwide as planned. Climate lockdowns are planned to continue this destruction under the guise of saving the planet from climate change which is not caused by humans or anything on Earth. Cult-owned corporations pay a fractional amount of tax. This is possible through their control of politicians, through political donations and therefore laws. Smaller companies must pay every penny of tax and thus cannot compete. Cult-created companies like the Silicon Valley behemoths have the added advantage of not needing to watch the bottom line in their formative years, thus undercutting any competition. Funding is always available to keep cult-owned companies afloat. They can also sell their products below cost, again to the detriment of smaller companies in an aim to secure a monopoly. Peter McLaughlin, an entrepreneur, consultant and professor at California State University, wrote in 2017 that Walmart achieved their wealth by selling foreign goods to domestic consumers, cheap Chinese garbage manufactured in offshore factories paying slave, slave wages. Wages that American manufacturers could never match. America lost an estimated 400,000 jobs from 2001 to 2013 as a result of Walmart imposing, importing and selling Chinese-made goods. The Russia-Ukraine conflict will have far more devastating consequences for the West than Russia and China, exactly as planned, with self-destructive sanctions and their obvious effects on the economy bringing the West to its knees and opening the door for the introduction of Klaus Schwab's Great Reset of the World Economic Forum one of the major organisations coordinating the cult's agenda. As I've talked about in this podcast before, AI in the workplace is also contributing to this agenda and is designed to end with no human employment and the economic devastation and sanctions will only speed up that outcome. AI, machines and technology doesn't have to be paid. Western countries like Britain and America banning Russian oil and gas is only going to drive prices even higher for supply in the West. Russia has autonomous oil and gas reserves and revenue in the trillions. 2030 is a major year for the cult's agenda, as I explained in pay-per-view in print. Nothing gives the cult the justification to introduce their agenda more than a pandemic, albeit a pandemic hoax. The climate change hoax and war. The cult have played these cards right at the start of the decade before 2030 and that is no coincidence.
Russia is not concerned about sanctions as China has its back energy-wise. The human-caused climate change hoax also massively contributes. The COVID hoax and the human-caused climate change hoax fuse with the same solutions for both. One example is a digital digital ID system which will combine vaccination history, carbon footprint and social media activity. The plan is that this digital ID will be used as a digital currency eventually embedded under the skin. The cover story will the cover story will be saving the world in convenience when viruses don't exist and, and I explain why in the new book in great detail and the technology and 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 I know this for a fact the technology has existed for decades to overcome the need for fossil fuel use and energy bills free energy technology which is free forever once it's set up and uses the natural energy grid the energy fields of the planet the public are denied access to this technology while at the same time being told they need to cut down on energy use because of sky-high energy bills as a result of the COVID hoax and sanctions on Russia due to the Ukraine conflict. To achieve this population dependent on authority agenda, the cult needed to destroy businesses and independent incomes and we've seen this worldwide since 2020 as businesses were told to close and went out of business worldwide. The digital ID system is planned to connect with a global smart grid itself proposed to save the world from climate change which would see everything connected to AI. The digital ID will decide if you can purchase or not and this plays into the cashless society agenda. The COVID hoax has created massive inflation and we're only just seeing the start of the consequences of that now. A war would obviously create even more economic consequences. A post-democratic, post-industrial society is the plan with giant corporations manufacturing and selling everything and an end to small and medium-sized businesses. Democratically elected governments are planned to be replaced by technocracy. Since 2020, the world has seen technocracy going global as political leaders and parties were bystanders to government, medical advisors and health agencies whose advice became policy. Money was hosed with no limits at the COVID hoax, which has caused massive inflation. The COVID lockdowns and business closures meant energy was in much shorter supply in the COVID era. As normality returned, the demand for energy massively increased while supply and therefore cost is at a premium. Russia is the biggest exporter of oil and gas in the world. The cost of diesel has hugely increased as a result of the human-caused climate change hoax, which is widespread implications for the cost of living. Increase the cost of energy and you increase the cost of everything because everything needs energy. The goal is to create desperation and destitution to create dependency. John Katsimatidis is an American billionaire, businessman and radio talk show host. Katsimatidis is the owner, president, chairman and CEO of Gristedes Foods, a grocery chain in Manhattan and the Red Apple Group, a real estate and aviation company with about $2 billion in holdings in New York, Florida and Pennsylvania. Katsimatidis said, a recession does not have to happen. Open up the spigots and the price of oil will drop to 60, 55. It makes no sense at all. It's wiping out the American economy. Somebody's on the path to try to destroy America. 
the somebody is the cult. The COVID hoax has had an incredibly destructive effect on the American economy, indeed the global economy, which is why it happened. America has long been bankrupt and only continues to survive and hide this fact by raising the debt ceiling. This was the case before the COVID hoax and the $192 billion spent by the US government on COVID relief funding only made matters dramatically worse. 80% of US dollars in circulation at the start of 2022 had only been created since January 2020. This will have a disastrous effect on the economy exactly as planned. I've pointed out in this podcast many times that the plan is to break up countries into regions or sectors and that you eventually won't be able to leave your sector without permission. We're seeing the beginning stages of that now in 15-minute cities. The plan, as I've pointed out again many times in the podcast and the books, is an end to private travel. Public travel, especially rail travel, is planned to be the main means of transport in the Hunger Games society. If you challenge or question authority, you will be if you challenge or question authority, you will be denied access to public travel. And again, we saw that with If you challenge or question authority, you will be denied access to public transport. And again, we saw that with the COVID fake vaccine passports. In Reality Check, I explore the psychological manipulation techniques which were used on the population to garner support for COVID policies in a deep dive into how our perceptions are formed, maintained and manipulated. If perceptions don't change, nothing can change because everything comes from perception, which is why I have examined human perception in the new book in great detail. The COVID hopes employed extensive knowledge of the human psyche to generate compliance and perceptual acquiescence to the COVID narrative. Perception dictates behaviour and perception is formed from information received and this is the reason for the censorship and monitoring of online information and opinion as with the 77th Brigade, Unit 8200 and Silicon Valley. The common theme throughout all these experiments, the central theme of the new book, Reality Check, is to question everything. Everything. Only by questioning everything can we truly get a grasp on anything, especially that which we already take, especially that which we already take for granted. Especially that which we already take for granted. Only by questioning and understanding how our perceptions are manipulated can we take back control of our minds and thus take back control of our world and see events in their true context and that's what this podcast is all about.